Uh, Let's come to God in prayer. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, thank you that you are a God who delights to make yourself known to people. Uh, Thank you for the way you do this through all the different literature of the Bible, the books of the law, the prophets, the gospels, the New Testament letters, and Old Testament historical narrative like we will come across tonight. Help us to hear your word tonight as neither myth nor fiction, but as your true word to us. Help us to know more of you through this word. Help us to recognize our need for you in this word. And may your spirit use this word to strengthen our trust in Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Uh, Well, I wonder if you can remember the last time you felt snubbed by someone. Uh, Can you remember the last time you felt the sting of being ignored or overlooked or rejected? Uh, I can still remember the first time I kind of felt snubbed in a major way. It was when I was in grade two and I found out that everyone else in my class had been invited to a birthday party except me. That's not actually me. (laughs) Uh, That cut me deep. And when I tell that story to my kids, they're outraged. They get how messed up that is. When was the last time you felt that? Perhaps you were snubbed when you were out at the shops and you made eye contact with someone you knew, you threw up your hand, you said hi, and you got nothing. Perhaps you had a little taste of being snubbed when you're out driving, you graciously let someone in the flow of traffic and no thank you wave. What snubbery. The interesting thing about being snubbed, though, is that the offender often has no idea of the offence they've caused. They don't realise that the relationship has been wounded and needs repair. Sometimes the snub has to be called out for that to happen. Now, it's one thing to be sort of sn- uh, to snub a friend down the street or someone on the road, but imagine being called out for snubbing the living and almighty God. Imagine God coming to you and saying, excuse me, you have ignored me, overlooked me, you have rejected me. How would you respond then? See, in tonight's passage, we see God giving that kind of message to King Ahaziah. He had snubbed the living God in his greatest moment of need, and God calls him out for it now. And the question that kind of lies before us as we listen to this text is, will we learn from his experience? Will we walk the foolish path of snubbing God in life and in death? Or will we walk the wise path of trusting God in life and in death? I've broken up the text into three parts. Ahaziah ignores God, Ahaziah opposes God, and Ahaziah is judged by God. So let's look at the first one. Ahaziah ignores God. Now, now what do we know about this guy, King Ahaziah? Well, at the end of 1 Kings 22, which Jane started off by reading, we read that Ahaziah was the son of King Ahab, who we've come to know over this sermon series. He was the evil king of Israel who ignored God and lived in persistent idolatry. Now, unfortunately for Israel, Ahaziah is a chip off the old block. You see that recorded for us at the end of 1 Kings 22. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, 
because he followed in the ways of his father and mother and, and of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, who caused Israel to sin. He served and worshipped Baal and aroused the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, just as his father had done. King Ahaziah is a chip off the old evil block. But the thing about God that we've come to see in this sermon series is that he just won't sit around being ignored or being traded in for an idol. In Israel's law, God had warned his people that if they ignore him, if they chase after other idols, they will suffer turmoil and judgment as opposed to his life and blessing. And you see, that is the very note of turmoil and judgment that the book of two kings starts on. Ahaziah experiences two big crises as king over Israel, one national, one personal. The national crisis is seen in the opening comments about Moab in verse 1, if you noticed it there. Uh, We're told that this nation, which had been subject to Israel, now rebels against Israel. Israel's power and influence are falling apart here. But you see, Moab's rebellion against Israel is in many ways a judgment for Israel's rebellion against God, headed up by Ahaziah. But there's a personal crisis too. In verse 2, you see it. Now, Ahaziah had fallen through the lattice of his upper room in Samaria and injured himself. Now, we're not told how this young king manages to fall through a wall. Uh, My money's on a drunken party. Uh, But we are told that it was a bad fall. Bad enough to make him question whether he's actually even going to recover from that fall. Actually, that sets the scene for the rest of our passage. King Ahaziah is ruling over a fractured kingdom and is staring his own end in the face. So what will he do? Will he wake up to his true need for the true God or will he keep snubbing him? C.S. Lewis famously said that God whispers in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. You know, maybe you've experienced that, where it's been through a moment of crisis that God has been able to get your attention so that you are able to know him more and experience the blessings he offers in Jesus. I think God is shouting to Ahaziah in his pain here. As he lies on his bed in distress, this is functioning, I think, as God's wake-up call to him to leave his life of destructive idolatry. God's giving him space, opportunity for repentance. So what will he do? Will he hear God shouting to him in this moment? Well, let's see where he goes for help in verse 2. So he sent messengers saying to them, go and do what? Call the prophet of the Lord, for only he has the power to help. He doesn't say that, does he? He says, go and consult Balzebub, the god of Ekron, to see if I'll recover recover from this injury. Ahaziah snubs God in the most dramatic fashion. Instead of going to the God of his people, the true God, he looks beyond Israel into Philistine territory to inquire of a local false god there. Maybe the god of Ekron, maybe he can help. See, this isn't just offensive to God, it's actually stupid. This is kind of like a gunshot victim who is bleeding out, stumbling past the doors of an emergency 
uh, hospital and choosing instead to walk into the doors of a Macca's for help. Instead of going to the doctor, the surgeon who can help him, he goes to a 16-year-old boy and says, I'm dying, I need your wisdom, I need your help. See, Ahaziah not only snubs the true God in the most offensive way, he misses out on any help he actually could have got. And so we see God's chilling pronouncement come to him in verse 3. But the angel of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, go up and meet the messengers of the king of Samaria and ask him, is it because there's no God in Israel that you're going off to consult Baalzebub, the god of Ekron? Therefore, this is what the Lord says, you will not leave the bed you're lying on, you will certainly die. So Elijah went. So it's kind of like God saying to him, Hey, Zaya, do you care so little about me? Do you think so little of me that the first God you turn to isn't me, the true God of your people's ancestors, but the false God of your people's enemies? Do I rate so low on your list of priorities that you can so easily bypass me in your moment of need? See, if you bypass the doctor for a 16-year-old kid who works at Macca's, don't be surprised when it backfires. Ahaziah, you will certainly die. Uh, That's the essence of God's message to this king who snubs him. Now, when the messengers uh, walk in the door, ready to give that message to the bedridden king, uh, the king's all confused. He's thinking, why have you come back, verse 5? Didn't I just send you to Ekron? And they kind of respond by saying, well, yes, but then we got stopped by a bloke who told us to turn around and give you another message, not from Baalzebub, but from the Lord, our God. And this is what the Lord says. Is it because there is no God in Israel that you are sending messengers to consult Baalzebub, the God of Ekron? Therefore, you will not leave the bed you are lying on. You will certainly die. Well, how would you respond if you were in his shoes? Maybe shock, fear, You might want to gather a bit more information about who, is the message credible? That's where he goes, isn't it? He wants some more answers, but the messengers don't really have all the answers. All they have is a description. And so they reply in verse 8, well, he had a garment of hair and a leather belt around his waist. Now, another possible translation of that verse reads that Elijah was a hairy man, not simply that he wore a hairy garment, But either way, the point remains that there was a lot of hair going on with Elijah and that this, along with a unique belt, is the dead giveaway for who he is. Ahaziah knows he is dealing with Elijah, the Tishbite, the prophet of the Lord. Now, we're going to get to Ahaziah's response to all of this in just a minute, but I think it's actually worth pausing to reflect on why God cares so much when people ignore him. See, maybe you're listening tonight and maybe you're thinking, well, I haven't actively cursed God. I'm not an ardent atheist. I have no issue with others worshipping God. I just don't think he needs to be a huge part of my life. I kind of have other options for hope and meaning. Why does God seem to take such offence at that kind of benign attitude? Well, here's why. You see, when we ignore God or snub him, we're communicating to him that he is either irrelevant, inadequate, 
or imaginary. Now, let me just explain those three. You see, to ignore God is to suggest that he's irrelevant. It's to say to the creator and sustainer of all things, that you're not really necessary. And that's a huge insult. But that's what Ahaziah did. He acted like God was just one option among many. Good for some, but not the right fit for him. But God calls us to see him as infinitely relative, relevant to our lives. The only one who can save us from sin and death itself. That's why Paul says to the Athenian believers in Acts chapter 17 that they can't go on ignoring the true God anymore. He commands all people everywhere to repent and to turn to him. But to ignore God is also to suggest that he's inadequate. It's to say the one who holds your life and the whole world in his sovereign hands that he actually can't really do much for you. So why bother him? We could do better with someone else, perhaps. You see, in his greatest moment of need, Ahaziah goes to Baal-zebub because he believed that option could give him something God couldn't. You see, that is the heart of idolatry, the false belief that something other than God has a greater power to help you or save you or give you what you most need. To ignore God is to say he's inadequate. But to ignore God is also to say that he's imaginary. It's to say that the living God, that he's kind of non-existent and therefore has no place in serious thought or real issues, which is why we probably don't see God's name mentioned a lot in the news. It's the kind of attitude that simply writes God off as a, I guess, a myth that maybe other people cling to. God was offended that Ahaziah treated him like he didn't exist. Is there no God in Israel? See, when we ignore God and put our hope or trust in other things, we're communicating that he's either irrelevant, inadequate, or imaginary. And that is sin. And don't think that that's just an attitude that kind of happens out there beyond the walls of the church. I think it's easy for us as Christians to act like Ahaziah and ignore God in times of our need. I've seen this tendency in myself. When I feel the stress of life or when some curveball hits me or my family, my temptation is not necessarily to look up but inward into myself. I noticed this even in the past uh, last week when I had to help my family out. My first reaction wasn't, God, help me, but how can I fix this? How can I fix this? Instead of first going to God in prayer, I went to my phone to make a whole bunch of calls. And it wasn't actually until later when I was driving on Eastlink that I suddenly realized I hadn't really brought God into this equation in a serious way, to my shame. Now, don't get me wrong, being proactive in a moment of crisis is good, it's necessary, but ignoring God in a moment of crisis is wrong. Ahaziah shows us this. Our God is not irrelevant, he's not inadequate, and he's certainly not imaginary. So why would we think, as weak and frail people, that we could handle the situation better than he could? And maybe you're a bit like me, maybe you easily forget that. 
In the moment of my stress, I think God could have easily said to me, is it because there's no God in the Shaw household that you are choosing first to go to your phone and trust yourself? See, we need to make sure that our powerful God is the first port of call in particular moments of great need. To do otherwise is to diminish his glory. Ahaziah shows us that this is both foolish to ignore him and, if left unchecked, dangerous. So we've seen Ahaziah ignores God. Second, he opposes God. You see, that's how he responds when God calls him out on his sin. It's not humble repentance. It's hostile opposition. And you can see this in the way he sends out a 50-man strong military contingent to march up against Elijah. In verse 9, then he sent to Elijah a captain with his 50, a company of 50 men. The captain went up to Elijah, who was sitting on top of a hill, and said to him, Man of God, the king says, come down. See, these men are not designed to be a kind of guard of honor to lead Elijah back to Samaria. This is an open declaration of hostilities. And that's certainly how Elijah sees it. That's why God has to tell him later on in verse 15 not to be afraid even when the third captain says all the right stuff. See, what's going on here, I believe, is an attempt by Ahaziah to twist the arm of God's prophet in order to squeeze out a different, more favorable word towards him. He thought hostility, not humility, was going to be his ticket to life. But verse 10 shows us what happens when Humanity stands in opposition to the holy God. Elijah answered the captain, If I'm a man of God, may fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50 men. Then fire fell from heaven and consumed the captain and his men. Now you would think that would scare the living daylights out of everyone in Israel to hear that report. But apparently not King Ahaziah. He doesn't quit there. Instead, he sends out a second military contingent, verse 11. At this, the king sent to Elijah another another captain with his 50 men. The captain said to him, man of God, this is what the king says, come down at once. Well, if I'm a man of God, Elijah replied, may fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50 men. Then Then the fire of God fell from heaven and consumed him and his 50 men. Now, I suspect most of us find that image or those two images, very confronting. I'm not going to claim to have all the answers on that, but I do think this picture reveals a couple of crucial things we need to know about the nature of God's judgment on sin. See, the first thing we learn is that it's no small thing to ignore or oppose the living God like Ahaziah and his troops do here. See, we would like to think that God should just put up with our snubbing him for other idols like other religions or money or sex or whatever it might be. But the truth is that he takes that attitude seriously and he sees it as a great offence, worthy of great judgment. The fact, and the fact that God sends fire in this moment is actually supposed to cast our minds back to his actions on Mount Carmel where the God who answers by fire, he is the true God, worthy of people's worship. Ahaziah and his men had ignored God's past actions and warning to their own peril. But second, whenever God shows us a picture in the Bible of 
terrifying justice, it actually comes as a helpful warning to us. Because God doesn't want us to suffer his judgment, he sometimes lets us feel the horror of it. Because he loves us, he warns us. It's the same reason Jesus Christ speaks on various occasions about hell. He doesn't want us going there, so he tells us about it. He warns us. As God would later say in the, through the prophet Ezekiel, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. Turn, turn from your ways. Why will you die, people of Israel? See, a healthy fear of God's judgment isn't a bad thing. It's kind of like the quit campaign, which uses those terrifying images to warn of the dangers of smoking. Lung disease, eye problems, death. They're not given to just make smokers feel bad about themselves. They're given for their good, so that they might heed the warning and avoid the terrible risks associated with smoking. A friend friend once shared with me that it wasn't until a Christian actually kind of had the guts to speak about God's judgment on sin that he actually stopped treating God and his word like it was optional in a couple of areas of his life. When he realized that salvation was at stake, that changed things. Sometimes it's a grace of God to grow in us a godly fear of his justice on our sin. It wakes us up to the reality and forces us back to our Lord and Saviour Jesus. And actually, that's what we sing about when we sing the second verse of Amazing Grace, which, you know, doesn't often get the attention as the first. But there we sing, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved." How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. You see, Ahaziah had no fear of God, and that would be his downfall. But there is one man who does fear God in this passage, and that's the third captain that he sends out, that Ahaziah sends out to Nabalijah. See, unlike his king and the two captains before him, this guy approaches Elijah with humility not hostility. So the king, verse 13, sent a third captain with his 50 men. This third captain went up and fell on his knees before Elijah. Man of God, he begged, please have respect for my life and the lives of these 50 men, your servants. See, fire has fallen from heaven and consumed the first two captains and their men, but now have respect for my life. You see, this guy rightly heeds God's warning and comes in humility, not hostility. Where the first two captains kind of march up confidently in the authority of Ahaziah and shout demands at Elijah, this captain doesn't even ask him to come down, but he just begs on his knees for his life. Where the first two feel the sting of God's wrath, this guy feels the relief of God's mercy, wrath turned away. 1 Peter 5 tells us that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And that's what we see here. The third captain, who was in many ways himself on the enemy side, humbly asks for life, graciously receives it. Grace had taught his heart to fear. Grace, his fears relieved. 
See, how should Ahaziah respond, have responded in the face of his imminent death? Well, he should have acted like this guy, the third captain. He should have actually humbled himself. He should have fallen on his knees before the true God and pleaded for the life he didn't deserve. Now, we're going to think about the implications of that in just a second, but I just want us to see where Ahaziah kind of ends up at the end of all this. You see, throughout his life and now in his death, Ahaziah snubs God. He ignores him, and then when he's called out about that, he opposes him. And so Ahaziah finally is judged by God in his death, which is point three. If you look at verse 15, so Elijah got up and went down to uh, Elijah got up and went down with him to the king. He told the king, this is what the Lord says, is it because there is no God in Israel for you to consult, that you have sent messengers to Baal-zebub, the god of Ekron. Because you have done this, you will never leave the bed you're lying on. You will certainly die. So he died, according to the word of the Lord. Ahaziah had snubbed the only one capable of giving him life in the face of death. When we ignore God, we do exactly the same thing. Instead of humbling himself and seeking the blessing of the Lord, he simply fades off the scene as quickly as he arrives. He dies with nowhere to succeed him, verse 17. The line of this young king is cut off and his short reign is forever consigned to the dusty annals of the kings of Israel. Ahaziah stands as an example of how not to face your end. Uh, There was a series on the ABC uh, a few years back called You Can't Ask That. Uh, Each episode featured a group of about four people who shared a unique and often misunderstood background or circumstance. could be anything. Uh, Some people who were former alcoholics or or ex-prisoners or members of the deaf community. could be anything. Uh, the only expectation of those who appeared on the show uh, was that they had to answer any question that was sent in about their particular circumstance. No question was off limits. Uh, one particular episode was a group of about four people who were you kind of united by the fact that they all shared a terminal illness and were all facing their death. Uh, during the particular, this particular episode, this question came up. Have you suddenly turned to religion? Uh, which from the way they answered those quest- that question seemed to be understood by most of them as, have you turned to the Christian idea of God? Now, though there were different responses, they all arrived at the same conclusion, which was no. Uh, one woman instead found a degree of solace in the idea that she would be remembered by others. One man found a bit of comfort in the idea that maybe his atoms wouldn't somehow return to the universe. And one man simply said this, I was brought up Catholic, I did the whole altar boy thing as a Catholic, but I don't see that the Almighty has any place in my death. Now maybe you're listening here tonight, and you kind of resonate with the people in that episode. You're not yet convinced that God would have any place in your death. Now while that's a common view in the world we live in, This passage is showing us how devastatingly misguided that mindset is. See, I'm not sure what version of God those people had in mind, but if we continue to ignore 
the true God, the God of the Bible, if we keep pushing him aside, we will have to face his judgment, his eternal judgment for that attitude. Hebrews 9 tells us it is destined for man to die once and after that to face judgment. But God doesn't tell us just how not to respond. He also tells us a way that we can actually find life in the face of death. See, the third captain gave us a clue. I said we'd return to him. He showed us that we can avoid God's wrath and receive life if we humbly cry out to him for mercy. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And God tells us that the way we humbly cry out to him today is not by falling at the feet of another prophet, but by falling at the feet of his son Jesus, who saves us by dying for us. See, if we want to know God's forgiveness of our sin, if we want eternal life in the face of physical death, then we need to humbly cry out to Jesus for mercy. I've used this illustration before for our rescue by Jesus from sin and death, but you can think of it a little bit like this. Imagine you're at the beach uh, between the two flags. Imagine you're at the beach uh, and the flags have been set up by the lifesaver to mark out a safe place to swim. As you head into the water, the lifesaver says to you, now just remember, keep between the flags and you'll be right. Go outside the flags and you'll end up in trouble. Now while you give him a kind of nod, you know in your heart that you intend to ignore him. The water and the waves outside the flags just look too good to miss and you start making a few judgment calls on the lifesaver himself, thinking he's a bit of a control freak, just out to spoil your fun. And so after a moment or two of swimming between the flags, you kind of stealthily start swimming outside the flags. But about 10 metres outside the flags, you suddenly get caught in a rip. It starts taking you out to sea. No one sees you go. You try swimming against it, but it's no use. You only tie yourself out and become completely exhausted. Your situation at this point is hopeless. You're as good as dead. But then it hits you that there is one hope left, and it's found in the very person you've chosen to snub, the lifesaver. And so in humble desperation, you throw up your hand and you call out to him, hoping that he sees you with his binoculars. He does see you, and thankfully he rushes in to save you. See, the God that you and I have refused to listen to, have chosen to ignore in many and different ways, is the very one who comes to rescue us in his son Jesus. But Jesus not only puts his life in danger like a lifesaver, he's actually willing, and he does give it up for sinners. See, we don't deserve to be rescued, but God the Son is a good and gracious lifesaver. He is merciful to those who have snubbed God and promises to always rescue any who call out to him. As Paul says in Romans chapter 10, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord Jesus will be saved. You see, I'm not sure what view of God the people on You Can't Ask That had, but I just hope they were able at some point to meet the true version of God that you see revealed in Jesus. What place will the Almighty have 
in your life and in your death. Don't be like Ahaziah who snubs God and ends up under his judgment and death. Put your trust in Jesus who mercifully gives you God's blessing of life. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us in 2 Kings chapter 1. Please help us to heed the warning of King Ahaziah's life. Uh, Please forbid that we should become comfortable in ignoring you. Please convict us where we are living in opposition to your word. And please comfort us with the good news that our sin has been paid for in Jesus' death as we trust him. Please renew our hope in the promise of eternal life and resurrection life that Jesus gives us. In his name we pray. Amen.